I'm Joey Newton. I'll be reading from Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, I ask that those who are eager to hear it might have their hearts made full in the treasure that is here. In the Lord Jesus, in his word for us, Lord, I pray those who are exploring whether this word really is true might receive the full, glad conviction that it is. Lord, work in our hearts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine this scene with me. It's a scene found in Glenn Scrivener's book, The Air We Breathe, but I've added my own embellishments to it. Imagine a modern writer's room, but in the first century A.D. They're gathered around a table that's full of blank pieces of papyrus waiting to be filled, are four men looking somewhat anxiously at each other and idly fidgeting with their quills and ink. These four men are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four men who will write the gospel accounts that we have in the New Testament. But as of this moment, they haven't written a single word. There's a knock at the writer room door, and in strides Peter, like a boss about to rally the team before delivering some bad news. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter begins, I've got a job for you. I know you've had no prior training or experience, but I need the four of you to write the most influential works of literature ever penned. As for the timing, we need it finished yesterday. Of course, it would have been better to wait a while, a a few centuries, let them go by before inventing any legends about Jesus. That way, none of Jesus' contemporaries could contradict our fabricated tales. But this Paul guy has messed all that up for us with writing these letters to the churches around the Mediterranean. He's been preaching Jesus as the promised Messiah. And heaven knows why, but all these people have believed in this good news. 
about God on a cross. The story seems to be working. So you need to fill in the details. Please, can you write the origin story for our hero? What did he do? What did he teach? Paul's letters gave us the bare bones. I need you to put the warm flesh on them. Are you up for it? Matthew, as a tax collector, I know numbers are more your thing, so please try not to bore people. Mark, don't include any embarrassing personal details. (laughs) And please try to portray me and the other disciples in a good light. John, as a fisherman, don't talk too much about fishing or use any of that salty language from the pier. Luke, the physician, please just write it legibly. Please, okay? It won't be easy. I need this to be the life and times of the greatest figure in human history. God, but also man. Sinless, but also the life of the party. Pure, but with profound depth. The judge of the world, but with bottomless compassion. The fulfillment of all of our Jewish hopes, but with a global appeal. A man in time, but also a man for all times. We need a hero with heart-melting kindness, yet steely determination. We need him blasting the self-righteous and befriending sinners. We need a sublime ethical teacher with teachings falling from his lips, the kind that reshape cultures and build up civilizations. We need extraordinary miracles from him, the kind that would have been noticed and could therefore have been contradicted by the generation to which you're writing. We need a credible narrative arc whereby he remains impeccably righteous, but nonetheless is condemned as a blasphemer. And we need it all to stand up to scrutiny. Scriptural, theological, geographical, linguistic, literary, and historical. It needs to be believable to people both near and far, now and later, for those who've lived through these times, and for all generations who come afterward. This is going to take real genius, men. Can you guys deliver? By the way, it would be really helpful if y'all are also willing to be tortured and killed for all the stuff you're making up here, because that's probably coming. Matthew, the tax collector, cautiously raises his hand. No, Matthew, you won't be receiving any royalties. (laughs) The hand goes back down. Now, there's a reason why I wanted you to visualize that imaginary scene. You probably already know the reason why. If the teachings and stories recorded in the gospel accounts didn't come from Jesus, where do they come from? They had to come from somewhere Where do you locate the genius? Everyone from historians to literary scholars to theologians to just the average reader with a limited education acknowledges that there is real genius behind the words and works of Jesus. Jesus taught like no one else ever did. He used stories and images that stick in the mind and in the heart like no one else. He was an originator 
the Roman world had never heard of any ethical system built upon love before Jesus. We take that for granted, but it was new. Jesus' ethical teaching transformed the Roman world then, and his words are still transforming our world today. What is the source of this world-transforming genius? Where do those world-changing words come from? Historians will tell you that you have to locate the genius somewhere. The uninformed person on the street or perhaps in your classroom at school might say to you, didn't just a a bunch of early Bible-copying monks get together and pretty much make up what Jesus said? To which you can and should push back, have you ever seen a world-changing story written by a committee? Have you ever seen that happen? Have you ever been on a committee? Have you ever been on a church committee? It seems pretty far-fetched that an early church committee is the genius behind the Gospels. It also seems pretty impossible that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the original source of genius. Untrained men, even if locked in a writer's room together, could not write with the depth and genius, with the internal integrity and coherence that we find in the gospel accounts. That's next to impossible. These men aren't the real source, but they could have known the real source. They could easily have been eyewitnesses reporting to us the original genius, just like they said. Every good historian will tell you, you've got to locate the genius somewhere. And every credible historian today has concluded this. Jesus must have been a real historical person because it is the best explanation for the evidence. You have to locate the genius somewhere. The content we find in the New Testament has to come from someone. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. That saying has to originate with someone. And those who look into these things quickly realize how incredibly far-fetched it is for a committee of first-century fishermen and tax collectors to be the original geniuses behind the New Testament. It is much more likely, much, much more likely to locate the original genius behind the New Testament in one historical person, in one historical person of genius. The very person the gospel writers say that they saw, they held, they touched with their hands. They overheard him speak and teach these things. That's why they're recorded for us. I once overheard two non-Christian historians discussing the historicity of Jesus. And for them, it came down to Occam's razor. You know Occam's razor? You know what that principle is? If you have two competing ideas to explain a phenomenon, Occam's razor says you prefer the simpler one, the simpler explanation. When historians apply Occam's razor to the genius we encounter in the Gospels, they are forced to what is often to them a startling and unsettling conclusion. It is far simpler 
to locate the genius in one historical figure than in a committee. It is far more plausible of an explanation that all these sayings and teachings really are sourced in the historical Jesus. Professional historian Tom Holland, who is not a Christian, has freely acknowledged that without the birth of Jesus, history would have been unfathomably different. Those are his words. Unfathomably different. We cannot picture what history today would be like without the birth of Jesus. He went on to say this. He said, I don't believe that anything like Christianity would have occurred if that first generation didn't believe that something spectacular had really happened. The first generation had to believe something spectacular had really happened. Because we all know that first generation, you don't risk your life for something you faked. The first generation of Christians had to believe that something spectacular had really happened. They located the genius in Jesus. And they pushed aside all other philosophies or man-made traditions that threatened to obscure the life-changing realities they found in him. We see the Apostle Paul expressing that very thought in verse 8. Look with me, Colossians 2, verse 8. And as you look there, let me give you the first of our five headings this morning. Each of these five headings are calls to find something in Jesus. First here in verse 8, we are to locate the genius in Jesus. Locate the genius in Jesus. Verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What Paul says here was later articulated by that great theologian, Bob Dylan. You're going to have to serve somebody, right? You're going to be captive to somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. Your actions are never completely free and unrestrained. There are constraining factors upon you, like family expectations, or social pressures, or political ideologies, or self-made philosophies that guide and constrain our choices. Paul knows that something will win our hearts. Something must take first place in our affections. Our minds will be held captive by something. It could be some good ideal. It could be some empty deception. Something always is shaping us Shaping how we perceive the world. Shaping what we want to believe. What we want to be true. You're going to have to serve somebody. Paul says in verse 8, let it be Christ. Let it be him. Locate the real genius for loving and living in Jesus. Finding Christ, as Paul said in verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Find it in him, and don't be taken captive by anything less good, by anything less beautiful, by anything less true. Don't be distracted by anything less beautiful, less captivating, less satisfying. Compared to the genius we find in Jesus, everything else does feel empty by comparison. Everything else does feel fraught with deception and pitfalls. When Jesus spoke 
some hard truths, and many of his disciples began to leave, he turned to the twelve and said, you do not want to go also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have words of eternal life. Peter had located the genius in Jesus, the genius of eternal life. And Paul calls us here to do the same. You have to locate the genius somewhere. You may not see it in Jesus yet. You may not see the true source yet. But I pray that you'll grow increasingly dissatisfied with all else that could captivate you until you come to Jesus like Peter, freely and gladly confessing, where else would I go? You alone possess the divine genius that leads to eternal life. We see why that's true in verse 9. Look at verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Here's the second thing we need to locate in Jesus. We need to locate the fullness of deity in Jesus. The fullness of deity. If you're wondering how Paul and the first Christians saw Jesus, this verse is as clear as it gets. Paul says, all the fullness of God dwells in this man called Jesus Christ. Paul says, Jesus is God with flesh on. He is fully God clothed in our full humanity. This really helps explain his genius, doesn't it? This one speaks as though he sees straight through me because he does. He is God. He is all the essential properties of God wed to all the essential properties of man. Of course, there is genius here. Wouldn't you expect there to be? But maybe you didn't come here this morning with that expectation. Maybe you're here because you see some good in Jesus, but he is just one good among many. You see something good in every religion, philosophy. And in your mind, all religions are basically the same. They're all roads, different roads going up the same mountain. They all arrive in the same place. They all have some bit of the truth. Like blind men feeling an elephant, one has the tail, another the side, another the trunk. Every religion is grasping at a different part of the divine. And therefore, every religion describes something different, what they feel. Is that how you see it? That way of understanding religion may captivate your thoughts, but in Jesus, that way of thinking encounters a problem. If God has come to us as a man, shouldn't we take his word over everything else and everyone else? Shouldn't we take his word over Buddha and Confucius and Joseph Smith? Yes, we should. He is God come to us. 
If verse 9 is true, if in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, then all religions are not equal. All religious claims are not equally valid and authoritative. The genius that flows from Jesus is like drinking directly from the source. We're no longer like blind men touching an elephant, describing it differently to one another. In Jesus, God himself has come to us, putting his hands in our eyes and restoring our sight. We can see again. We can see Jesus. The divine being isn't some elephant. It's Jesus right there in front of us. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Even religious pluralists who want to claim that all religious beliefs are true, even religious pluralists must acknowledge that there is one great exception, the incarnation. The Christian belief that God became a man cannot be true because if God really came to us in the person of Jesus, we should listen to him over every other religious teacher throughout all of history, right? You see that. John 1 says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. We should take the word of Jesus, the word of the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, over everyone else. Only he has explained God. Fully, completely, truly. If you don't want your religious pluralism irreparably shattered this morning, you should look away quickly from verse 9. Because once you locate the fullness of deity in Jesus, no one else will do. No other word will satisfy. Nothing else will fulfill you. That's what we, that's what we see in verse 10. Look at verse 10. All the fullness is in him, verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. You've been made full. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Here's the third thing Paul is calling you to do. He's calling you to this. Locate your life's fulfilling in Jesus. Locate your life's fulfilling in Jesus, verse 10. Paul says that in Jesus you have been made full. You've been made complete. In him, your life has found its fulfillment. Because when you locate the genius in him, we locate our purpose as well. When we recognize the divine in him, we unlock God's design in us. God's design in our life. God designed us to live in a fulfilling relationship with him. It's a relationship that was broken, has been broken by our rebellion, but a relationship that Jesus came to renew and restore. Jesus completes us by restoring us to a fulfilling relationship with God. But this thought of being full and complete is closely followed by another thought for Paul. For Paul, our fulfilling is closely tied to Jesus reigning. Look again at verse 10. And in him you have been made full, you've been made complete, and he is the head 
over all rule and authority. For Paul, these two thoughts go hand in hand. My fulfilling and being made complete is directly connected to Jesus being the king who reigns over my life. I'm full because I live under the reign of a king whose rule is good and merciful, a king who is full of compassion and loving kindness. If you could be painfully honest with yourself today, I think you could recognize this broken reality. You make a very poor king over your own life, don't you? Your self-rule is very often self-destructive. Your reign isn't really satisfying or fulfilling. Wouldn't it be a relief to dethrone self, that selfish tyrant, and enthrone the true and rightful king over your life, to live under God's good authority? It would be a relief. More than that, it would be rest for your soul. That's what you get when you come to King Jesus. That's the call of this king upon you. This king says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is the gentle king. He is the humble king. As we dethrone ourselves and enthrone him in our hearts, we find the joy and rest our souls have been searching for. As we yoke ourselves to King Jesus, we discover that his reign is good and his burden is light. If you're a Christian today, you know what I'm talking about. You've discovered this reality, but you've probably also discovered this as well. Our selfish self continually wants to usurp the throne and take it back. We can, we're continually having to dethrone our old nature. And we know when we're losing that battle, when our anger or our pride or our lust or our desire for others' approval rules over our hearts and over our actions. In those moments, you sadly discover that you have momentarily exchanged the good reign of Jesus for your own selfish rule again. Christians are just as capable as anyone else of behaving badly. But they do it in contradiction to what Jesus has said, not because of it. We do it in contradiction to his reign, not out of obedience to his reign. We know that we've disregarded our king's decrees and his word when we fail to love our neighbor or to love our enemies or to be peacemakers in our relationships or when we wound with our words instead of bring healing. I can confidently say the moments in my life when I don't feel the fullness and completeness of verse 10 
are the moments when I have disregarded Jesus' rule and authority over my heart, over my actions. My kingship inevitably leads to my failing. Christ's kingship always leads to my fulfilling. I hope you've learned that lesson as well. I hope you've also learned this. I hope that you've learned to locate your spiritual healing in Jesus. That's our next heading. Locate your spiritual healing in Jesus. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If I haven't made this clear yet, I will make it clear now. When we come to Jesus, we come as those who are sick, needing healing. We come as those who are chronically ill, needing an operation. And the operation we need isn't the removal of some part of the body, like a cancerous organ. The operation we need is an operation on our heart. It's an operation on our desires. It's an operation to correct our affections. We need Jesus to perform an operation on us that Paul says is done without hands. In the Old Covenant, a physical operation was done with hands upon the body to mark you as part of God's covenant people. In the New Covenant, however, a spiritual operation is done upon the heart by the Spirit of God. The circumcision of Christ is a cutting away of the old fleshly nature, a kicking of that nature off the throne. It is about dethroning self and enthroning Christ in our hearts. This new covenant circumcision is a lot better than the old covenant circumcision, isn't it? It's a lot less painful, and it actually changes the heart. There was a problem in the Old Covenant, a problem that the Bible fully acknowledges. In the Old Covenant, many people had the sign of the covenant. They were circumcised, like Abraham, but only a remnant had the faith that made them faithful to the covenant. Only a remnant had the faith of Abraham. Many were in the covenant, but only a few within the covenant actually had the spirit at work in their life, at work in their hearts, that changed them. So, the prophets foretold of a day when a new covenant would come, a better covenant would come. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is the covenant I will make with them, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their heart, and on, law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. The prophet Joel joins Jeremiah in talking about this new covenant, proclaiming that God's Spirit will be poured out on all who are within the covenant. That's new. God's Spirit poured out on all who are within the covenant. It's not just the remnant anymore. Everyone in the covenant has the Spirit of God. Everyone within the covenant knows God, has the law, has his word written upon their hearts. So, the old covenant circumcision 
really doesn't count for anything. We now have a new covenant, which has a new sign. There's a new marker, one that outwardly displays this inward work of Christ upon your heart. What's the new sign of the new covenant? Do you know what it is? It's what Paul talks about next. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. Baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. It's the outward display and public testimony of an inward reality. You're testifying that Jesus has performed an operation upon your heart. Christ has invaded your life, dethroning the old tyrant of self and inaugurating his good reign in you. Baptism is a sign of our union with Jesus. It pictures our union with his death and resurrection. So, who receives this new covenant sign? The Old Testament prophets say, said, look for the one in whom the Spirit is at work. Look for the work of the Spirit in the heart. The Apostle Paul says here, look for the Spirit, but also look for faith. Faith in the work of Jesus. Look at verse 12 again. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through what? Through faith. Through faith in the working of God. As a convictional Baptist minister, pastor, I believe those who receive the sign of the new covenant, those whom we baptize here, must profess faith. Faith in the work of Christ. That's what we see in verse 12. They must profess their own faith in his death for sin. In in them being united with Christ in his resurrection. Verse 12 doesn't point to baptizing on the basis of someone else's faith. Baptizing a child on the basis of a parent's faith. It's your faith, verse 12, you're being baptized for. So, if you ever come to the conviction that you're genuinely believing the gospel in Christ for the first time, you need to tell someone. You need to tell me. Because by the Spirit and faith, you now are part of the new covenant in Christ. And baptism, the sign of the covenant, is your right and privilege and testimony. Baptism is a public testimony of this. You now locate your soul salvation in Jesus. That's our fifth and final heading. Locate your soul salvation in Jesus. It's verses 12 through 15. We've already covered verse 12, so let's look at verse 13 and following. Verse 13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. If you're here this morning exploring Christianity and wanting to know more about the Christian message, These verses are a pretty good summary, I'd say, 
The Christian message, message to the world is this. You were dead, verse 13. You were dead. You were spiritually dead. You were dead to God and the things of God. You were spiritually dead because sin had killed you. Your transgressions had severed the life-giving relationship you were designed to have with God. But in Jesus, God has entered into the mess we made and provided a way of salvation, a way to forgive us of all of our sins, a way to raise us up to spiritual life, raise us from spiritual death and reawaken life in us again. God brought us back to life, verse 14, through Jesus' death in our place. On the cross, God put our certificate of debt upon his son. Jesus hung there upon a cross, absorbing our punishment. Every drop of wrath we had stored up for ourselves, Jesus is drinking. He is absorbing. He drank every drop of what our sin deserved. So that now there is no more wrath for us. Jesus has taken it all out of the way by nailing it to his cross. In doing this, Jesus is saving our souls. And, verse 15, he is disarming our enemies, the enemies of our souls. The devil can no longer bring any charge against us. Christ has cleansed us that fully. The world will not overcome us. Rather, we will overcome the world by faith in him. We will overcome the world because we belong to the one who has triumphed over the world, who has triumphed over the enemies of our souls. And where he is, the Bible says, there we will be also, joining him in his victory. This is the essence of the Christian message and hope. If you're hearing it for the first time today, I pray that your eyes might be opened to see the divine wisdom and brilliance of it. If you're hearing it for the 10,000th time today, I pray that your heart might rejoice again in the glory and genius of it like it is the first time. All of us have a choice to make this morning because we have to locate the genius of the gospel message somewhere. The simplest and best explanation is to locate the genius where Matthew where Mark, where Luke, where John, and where Paul locate it. The glorious genius isn't found in them, tucked away in some first century writer's room. The New Testament writers were only witnesses. Witnesses who located the genius in Jesus. By God's grace, may we all do the same. Let's pray together. Father, may our eyes this morning, the eyes of our hearts, see more clearly than ever before the brilliance, the genius, the wisdom, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in the Lord Jesus. May by faith we embrace him as our king, the head over all rule and authority, the gentle, the humble king whose rule is good. May we gladly 
surrender. May we gladly push our selfish self off the throne and put there the true king whose reign over us is peace and love and joy. Lord, we've made a mess of things ourselves. May we turn to the one we were designed to live for. Lord, may that happen in our hearts this morning for the 10,000th time. May it happen in someone's heart this morning for the very first time. And may we be quick to tell others to speak of our King, in whom we have found life and joy and peace. Lord, we pray that our hearts might believe this gospel fresh and new this morning, and that would be our response now. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.